everyone. Welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. In this episode, I am joined by Erin O'Callaghan, who is a PhD researcher at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and her dissertation and her broader research at the moment focuses on survivors of sexual assaults involving substance use at the time of the assault. in addition to looking at survivors pleasurable and or wanted sexual experiences so that's what we're going to be talking about today and if you have any feedback for this episode or the podcast in general or if you'd like to get in touch please use the social media handles and the contact details in the podcast description and there is also links to organizations that support survivors of sexual violence and we've recently made a new open access google doc it's 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 an information sheet that you can use and it has a list of various organizations and networks that provide support to survivors of sexual violence in various countries so please feel free to use that and also add to that if you are aware of such a service in your area Thank you so much to everyone who's been joining in and listening and sharing the podcast. Please continue to do so. It means a lot and it really keeps us going. So that's everything from me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let's dive in. Hi Erin, welcome to Talking Research. It's so lovely to have you here. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, um, so I'm really excited for this conversation, and it's a really fascinating topic that we're going to be discussing today. But first of all, tell us about yourself. How would you introduce yourself in a way that you'd like to be introduced? Sure. Um. So my name, as you said, is Erin. <laughs> um. I am a, a PhD candidate at the University of Illinois Chicago in the United States, and uh. I in criminology um that's that's the program that I'm in currently I am entering well, I just started my 4th year uh in the program and um so this year I'm going to be working on my dissertation um so starting my dissertation stuff but my general um research interests you know are around sexual violence broadly but um my dissertation's going to focus on uh sexual assault uh involving substance use at the time of the assault um but also mm-hmm. asking about survivors uh wanted and positive sexual experiences um so sort of asking about both of those in in the same study um but i also do work on uh like sexual harassment in the workplace and uh disclosure of uh sexual assault in the workplace and sexual harassment experienced by um like graduate students so that's my mm-hmm. general uh research area and then i'm also really involved in um we're unionized at um as grad graduate uh workers at UIC um so i'm really involved in my union uh i am currently on the bargaining team um so i like help 
uh, draft like the proposals for our labor contract. Um, so yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Um, that's that's all really really interesting. So how did you get into this work? How did you get into researching all of these different issues related to sexual violence? Yeah. Um. So I started doing. Um. I. I did my bachelor's at the University of Cincinnati um, in Ohio, and I got my bachelor's in psychology and did a lot of um, like community-based work in Cincinnati around sexual violence. So was involved with stuff, you know, student survivors on like campus, um, but also like some nonprofit organizations in the community. Right. So, and at the time in, um, in undergrad, I thought I was going to be a therapist, but then I decided I didn't want to do that. <laughs> um, and I did graduate school and I sort of just like stumbled into a criminology program. I didn't really mean to be in criminology because I was in psychology, but um, I came to my program because of my advisor. So, and I am, I'm glad that I uh, switched from psych to criminology. So, and then I'm also a survivor myself. So also like my own personal experience, but then also doing a lot of the community kind of work that I did in undergrad made me want to research this in uh, graduate school. Right. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've said criminology. What What is criminology? It's this discipline, right? But what exactly does that entail looking at? Yeah, it's um, it's newer than some of like psychology or sociology. It's sort of like a marrying of like a, a lot of the like original criminologists come out of sociology. Um, in my department, we're pretty radical, I would say, um, in terms of the kinds of things that we study, like we have, um, a lot of abolitionist scholars in our department and I've been really shaped by the work that they do and their orientation. Yeah. That's sort of, it's more, um, it sort of marries a little bit of like psychology, sociology, kind of a bunch of disciplines in one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I guess studying sort of crimes, right? Like, violence and crimes and uh you know really taking a granular look at those yeah i don't know (laughs) know if that makes any sense Um, yeah it does (laughs) great i'm glad because my degree i'm doing a master's and my degree is called uh, woman and child abuse and Mm -hmm. uh before when i started some of my classmates said that they were having trouble telling strangers you know if someone asks them what what are you studying and they tell them oh it's woman and child abuse they'd get some you know eyebrow raises or some uh yeah. <laughs> you know not 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 really amazing responses so what i did was now if a stranger that i'm making small talk with asks me and i'm not sure how they respond i just say i study criminology that yeah that was kind of an unrelated story about criminology and women and child abuse but um yeah, they're they're quite related, aren't they? And to you know, get back to what we're talking about today, we're talking about your research uh, investigating the relationship between alcohol and sexual assault victimization. So alcohol and drugs and sexual assault victimization. Mm-hmm. Before we start talking about that, I just want to say that we're not uh, we're not talking about if an assault would have happened if uh, alcohol wasn't involved like that is absolutely not Mm -hmm. the not the point that we're going to be making and uh we you know because there's no victim blaming Mm -hmm. that we want to be doing and uh just wanted to say that straight out because it's never the fault of the victim survivor 
you know if they were drinking if they were using drugs or whatever the situation yeah. was the blame lies with the rapist or the perpetrator so that's something i wanted to get out there before we start mm-hmm. talking but tell us about you know um what we know about the this relationship mm-hmm. between alcohol and sexual assault victimization just to give us a background yeah um so we know that al- at least like alcohol specifically is pretty common in um sexual assaults around like half of sexual assaults um have re- report some level of alcohol use at the time whether that's the victim the perpetrator or both there's al- and there's also some uh other research on like other drugs too like marijuana is also like uh relative not as common as alcohol um obviously just because you know it's criminalized in a lot of spaces but um but marijuana is also relatively common um and then in the study that we're going to talk about later some other drugs as well and what we know about these types of assaults is that usually it involves voluntary use on the the part of the victim mm-hmm. so um the victim was voluntarily drinking at the time um but sometimes you know that could that could involve um like pressure to keep drinking from the perpetrator or um like something that's really i feel like common in sort of like media um uh depictions of alcohol involved mm-hmm. sexual assault is like somebody drugging someone so like spiking somebody's drink which happens um but it's less common than just voluntarily using at the time but there are some differences between um assaults, assaults involving alcohol and there's also differences um, between, like, we know that these types of assaults where alcohol use is involved, they are distinct from those that don't involve alcohol. Um, so, like, in terms of assault characteristics, like, uh, assaults involving alcohol use are probably going to involve um, somebody that the victim knows. Like, whether I mean, that's true of sexual violence in general, but um, definitely true with alcohol-involved sexual assault. And, like, post-assault outcomes are different too. So like there's more self-blame in victims of alcohol-involved sexual assault, and that's usually uh, related to the drinking. And they receive like different types of social reactions to their disclosure based on the fact that they were using alcohol at the time. So we do know that these types of assaults are distinct and and look a little different than right. those that might not involve um, any substance use at the time. I think that's a really interesting point that you made that uh, you know there's there's a lot of self blame after the the incident because i imagine that's what society tells us to think right like the rape myths and everything that oh you should have been more careful or uh, so so mm-hmm. it's it's really sad that that reflects in how uh, survivors view that experience um i can't imagine that being easy yeah it's definitely um more uh individualized i think um when there's sort of alcohol involved again again because that's usually with someone that they know um i think it's even more it impacts their their um how they conceptualize the assault afterwards like even more um like we also know that uh victims of alcohol involved sexual assault are less likely to acknowledge that their experience was rape um and a lot of that is due to sort of these societal messages about well, if you were drinking, then you were asking for it, or it's not really rape, or you just can't remember consenting, or some of these other like rape myths about alcohol and mm-hmm. sexual assault. Yeah, yeah, and 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 what you said earlier that they might have been drinking voluntarily, but that peer pressure to keep drinking, you know, that's so it's not really as as mm-hmm. clear as oh, you know, if a person's drinking, that's because they choose. There's often these 
conditions that especially I, I think especially with uh, young people so you know if you're going newly entering a university or a college and all of those different condi- different situations there's a lot of societal factors that contribute to that as well yeah and mm-hmm. and drinking culture broadly as well but um you know in your research before you talk about your study you've spoken about how research in the past that has looked at drinking related impairment or intoxication during sexual assault it hasn't really been ideal characterization of you know that that uh, the condition of the survivor so what what has research how has research in the past characterized this drinking related impairment during sexual assault and what is wrong with this yeah so more um recent uh sexual alcohol involved sexual assault research has sort of sought to categorize um what's called like the level of impairment due to um the drinking or drug use at the time so like basically like how were they maybe cognitively or physically um, impaired due to um, them using using drugs or drinking um, and how that may have impacted like the characteristics of the assault, but also their post-assault outcomes, namely like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms is a big one that's looked at as an outcome variable in, um, in, these, in these studies. So um, Heather Littleton was... Um, She did this study in 2009 that created these categories um, uh, of impairment experience at the time of the assault. So um, she asked survivors um, to who were using alcohol or or using drugs at the time of the assault to to, um, how to answer the question to the question, how out of it were they at the time of the assault? And they could check all that apply on this um, so they could. They could say, I was not out of it. Um, I had difficulty speaking. I had difficulty moving my limbs, so arms or legs. Uh, I had difficulty walking. I was asleep or I was unconscious mm-hmm. or blacked out. Obviously, like the, the less like out of it you are, the less impaired you are. So if you say, I was not out of it, you probably weren't impaired as a result of drinking alcohol or using drugs. But if you were unconscious or blacked out, you were probably mm-hmm. really impaired. So she again, did that in 2009. And um, she created these categories. She like split people um, into three different categories based on what they answered. So if they said that I was not out of it, then they were considered not impaired. If they answered, um, if they said that they had difficulty speaking, moving limbs, walking, or were asleep, then they were considered impaired. And if they were unconscious or blacked out, then they were considered incapacitated. And she did some comparisons between people who are in these categories as well as um, survivors who experienced uh, forcible only assaults, but were not drinking at the time. Um, So forcible only being that people weren't drinking or using drugs at the time, but the perpetrator used force um, to pressure them into or coerce them into, um, into the sexual assault. So when she found some differences in, I think PTSD and I'm trying to remember all, I think like levels of stigma so she did that in 2009. And then in 2017, um, some researchers sought to sort, they've sort of replicated that study, but added in another category um, where they had a category that was uh, assaults where victims were using alcohol at the time of the assault, but also reported use of force at the time of the assault. So this was sort of to 
break the stereotype that alcohol involved assaults are not violent. Um, they can be, and, and victims who are, um, just be, just because somebody is drunk or incapacitated at the time doesn't mean that their perpetrator is not going to also be violent or you, or use some type of force. I mean, all of this is violent, but just trying to yeah get at the stereotype that alcohol involved assaults are potentially less violent just because somebody might be incapacitated or impaired due to alcohol. But so the difference between this study and then Heather Littleton's study was that um, all of the categories were the same besides that combined category. And then she also, but she also put um, the, I was asleep into the incapacitated category instead of the impaired category. So neither of these researchers in the actual articles gave a reason for why like Littleton's study didn't give a reason for why asleep was put in the impaired category. And then the other study didn't give a reason why they put asleep into the incapacitated category. So already we sort of have a discrepancy with no real explanation as to why. Um, and that can that that matters because if we're talking about differences between these types of assaults and differences between these types of groups, then we want to be able to correctly, first of all, correctly um, or more accurately uh, describe survivors' experiences, but then also be able to inform like clinic if we're talking about like differences in PTSD, then we want to be able to more accurately inform like clinicians or advocacy, people doing advocacy work or people in therapy or something, you know, therapists. So already yeah. that that's sort of a discrepancy. Before, so before the study that we're going to talk about a little later, um me, me and my advisor with her data, we we tried to do the same thing that both the that we tried to replicate uh, what both of these studies um, did, but in a in a large community sample um, of victims. So um, Heather Littleton's study was within a college college sample of victims, and then the other study, which is um, McConnell and Messman Moore, they did this in a community sample, but it was a smaller um, sample size. So we um, tried to replicate what they did, but we were unable to exactly because we weren't able to um, tease apart impaired and incapacitated. So we weren't able to, so both of those previous studies put those into two different groups. In our uh, attempt at replicating, um, the the survivors in our sample um, fell into both groups and we weren't, so we had to combine impaired and incapacitated, even though we thought, given previous research, that these would be distinct groups, but they clearly mm-hmm. are not. So we were unable to directly, so we knew, so that's why we wanted to then look at the qualitative data in response to this question, um, because there had to be a reason why we couldn't tease apart our sample into these different categories. Um, yeah. And I think that was really well explained. And also the, the the need to define these terms, you know, impairment or incapacitation is so important because also they can be used differently in different cultures, right? So it's not that the mm-hmm. same, you know, if you say impairment and I say impairment and considering we speak different varieties of English, so you're, you know, you speak an American variety and I imagine I speak in a variety of Indian Indian English, you know, it's not guaranteed that we'll mean the same thing, even though we're using the same word. So, you know, as you point out, it's so important for research to define these terms clearly and explain what one category 
contains and why and what the limits to that category are so yeah i think that's a really really great point that you made there now i want to ask you about your study as you said you investigated you know mm-hmm. sort of a similar thing women's experiences of alcohol related impairment or you know, intoxication during sexual assault so yeah tell us about your study yeah so this was um with my uh advisors data from a three year uh longitudinal study of um sexual assault survivors in chicago um she has data from over eighteen hundred uh survivors so um really huge like really huge data set um for this particular study this was um a follow-up to the one that I briefly mentioned where we tried to replicate those other two studies quantitatively, but we weren't really able to do it the exact same way. So we were um, on this question about like, how out of it were you? We have, there was a, um, a an option to write in some more details. So we, we analyzed the qualitative um, responses that people wrote in the other section. Um, and originally what we thought we were going to be able to do was analyze um, all the qualitative data. And we figured, well, we're probably just going to put them into these categories of not impaired, impaired and incapacitated. And, but it'll just be qualitative data instead of, mm-hmm. instead of quantitative. Well, when we went and analyzed the data, we couldn't, we basically like could not do that with anyone <laughs> um, who wrote a qualitative response. None of them fit neatly into these categories. And they actually brought up things that uh, weren't covered by these categories. You just said about it being a long, long, longitudinal study. What, what is a longitudinal study? Mm-hmm. Yes. So basically, um, my advisor, um, and this was this was all um, completed before I like got to got to the program. Um, but we still have access to the data set and do stuff with the with the data. Um, but I believe it started in 2010, and it was a survey study um, that was mailed out to. Um, sexual assault survivors, this is when she was still using mail at the time. Um, (laughs) She'll love that I mentioned that. (laughs) Um, But so she um, uh, mailed it to, so they like screened people by calling people on the phone first um, to make sure that they qualified for the study, that they were somebody who had experienced um, a sexual assault and lived in Chicago. And so they mailed it to them um, at a time point like one time point. And then after they took it one year later, they would send them the same survey again. And then another year later, they would send them the same survey again. So the reason that researchers do this is so um, that we can see how people change over time. Um, whether like uh, she asked a lot about like mental health outcomes of assault. So you can see how that changes over time, which is really important for clinicians to know and people doing prevention and intervention to know. And uh, also to see, like, she was able to also um, look at any re-victimization they might have experienced over the time that they were in the study as well. So looking at that, looking at that as well. Right. That's that's really fascinating, getting that outlook that is informed by, you know, years of research and really just seeing how that person's attitude changes or how they, you know, they're thinking. Mm-hmm evolves around you know from the initial incident thank you for explaining that so what did you find mm-hmm. in this study you know uh, what were some of your findings some of your conclusions 
Yeah. So um, this study was really important just like in general um, to what my dissertation is going to. So this once after we um, finished this, this is how I like sort of went down the rabbit hole that is now my dissertation. Um, so what we found was we, we themat thematically analyzed the quality of data, just meaning we looked for like common themes between people who wrote in this open-ended um, question. So we found consciousness specifically. Um, I thought this was really interesting that a lot of survivors talked about I think what we something that we learned from a lot of this is that consciousness is not like one state of being and it's not a fixed state of being throughout the whole time of the assault. Um, so even though they might have on on what they could check off, they might have indicated I would I was unconscious or blacked out. But then in the in the fill in, they would say, well, I was in and out of consciousness or I blacked out for a little bit. But then I like remember this. And um, so it wasn't just a fixed state that they could be in and out of a lot of these categories. Um, and that would kind of depend on, you know, how long were they drinking for, you know, how much were they drinking or, or what, like, how did they talk about how the alcohol or, um, drugs like affected them. So that was really interesting. I think to see that like people, the, the in and out of consciousness, um, that, just because they might say that they were unconscious or blacked out doesn't mean they don't remember anything. Right. Um, I think it was really important because a lot of, I think a stereotype about people who are drinking at the time of the assault is that, well, they just don't, they don't remember anything. They were passed out, whatever. So like, you know, we can't, who, who knows if what they say is true. Well, when that, that's not really true. Like people do remember what happened to them. And just because they say they were blacked out doesn't mean they don't remember anything. So that was really interesting. Yeah. There was a lot of like physical um, impairments that people talked about that weren't really covered by these categories. So like people talked about feeling dizzy or having blurred vision or feeling hazy um, or like, you know, vomiting. Um, so some of these clear like physical indicators of impairment that were due to the alcohol or maybe like mixing alcohol and other drugs which those kinds of physical impairments. So in the, in the categories, you know, there's difficulty speaking and difficulty walking, but there's no like really physical um, impairments that are covered by these categories. So like throwing up or feeling dizzy, you know, the main thing that I talked about before is that like in these other two studies, a sleep was put into different categories. Um, and so we had some people talk about being asleep and sometimes they talked about being asleep as related to the fact that um, they were drinking. So like they had passed out because they were drinking or like if they were awoken because they were being assaulted while being asleep, like they were still drunk. So sometimes that was the case. Um, but sometimes people said I was sleeping, but it was not because of the alcohol use. So even though they were drinking at the time, like, you know, before the assault happened, just because they say that they fell asleep doesn't mean that they attributed it to the fact that they were drinking, which that can be really important too. Cause again, like society sort of has these like myths about people who were drinking at the time of the assault. Um, and if they were asleep due to the alcohol use, that's a very different, very different uh, situation than if somebody was asleep, but it's not relevant to, to um, the alcohol use either. Right. Um, so that was, interesting to sort of get these um different experiences of sleeping mm. we also found some people sort of being 
in between like not impaired and impaired. So two categories that we thought would definitely be different. Um, you know, people talked about like feeling hazy and sleepy and feeling a little buzzed or a little tipsy, um, but not impaired, but still like a little bit of something. So uh, that was interesting too, to see that like even not impaired and impaired could sort of be blurred. The lines could be blurred there. Mm. And then uh, some people talked about like they, how they felt um, just like it took them a minute to sort of um, to, to realize what was happening to them. Um, So they mentioned like, like not, not being able to, like sort of not becoming aware of what was happening until basically it was like already happening to them. Um, so sort of this delayed like reaction type, which makes sense um, probably just given the impairment that they were experiencing. Yeah. So pe- some people did mention like also like experiencing force at the time of the assault, which I sort of mentioned before can does happen in alcohol involved assaults. Like perpetrators still use force, even if somebody is impaired due to substance use. Um, and so with that, like people talked about like freezing, like freezing, um, not necessarily due to the, um, due to the alcohol use, but like just due to fear. So they could still feel like, it's still a visceral experience for people. So I think that's also sort of a common misconception. Well, if you're, you're drinking, you know, you can't really remember. So it's probably not as, um, traumatizing, which definitely is not true. Um, and I think that's the case given what some of our, some of the survivors said that they were, they were nervous. They were, they were intimidated. They were afraid of what to do. Um, so it's still a very like visceral experience, even if they might be cognitively impaired or physically impaired due to, due to the alcohol or drug use. Right. That that's all that's all really valuable. And I think what I'm taking away from it is that consciousness is not, you know, it's not a black and white thing. So there are no clear, mm-hmm. you know, lines uh that oh, you're conscious or you're not conscious. It can be, as you said, blurry. And I think uh, this is just making me think and you know, feel free to jump in on this, but um Mm-hmm. As uh, Liz Kelly's continuum of sexual violence, which essentially, yes. you know, says that uh, instances of sexual violence, they're not a hierarchy. So it's not that it's not about ranking them according to seriousness. It's rather that the way they're experienced by women, it's a spectrum, you know, uh, mm-hmm. so they're kind of related. And that spectrum tells us more about how women experience sexual or survivors experience uh, violence throughout their lifetimes. And that is more. That that's a more holistic way of uh, looking at it than you know putting these uh, these violations into hierarchies. And I think maybe mm-hmm. it's also useful to think of consciousness as you know uh, consciousness during sexual assault in terms of a continuum. So you know mm-hmm. the continuum of consciousness. I don't know if that makes any sense. That and that can be due to many reasons, yeah. not just you know alcohol or substance use, but also if you're re-victimized as you said so you know if you're if you've uh been abused as a child and then you're uh assault sexually assaulted as an adult and uh you experience that's uh, you experience an impairment which researchers have spoken about and re-victimization mm-hmm. is something that is being studied more and more as well so maybe there's that continuum of consciousness you know uh mm-hmm. that might also be a a better way of looking at this what do you think of that 
Yeah, um, and Liz Kelly and also um, Bianca Fileborn, mm-hmm. who I think you've had on this podcast here before, both have been, um, they're sort of, both both of them kind of talk about continuums of sexual violence or um, uh, Bianca's talked about like a continuum of unwanted sexual attention in some of her earlier work. Both of them have influenced my, what I'm going to be doing for my dissertation a lot. And I'm hoping, so because of the, what um, we found in this study in my dissertation, I hope to do um, full interviews about like this experience of impairment and what that was like um, and how impairment may have impacted them differently, both in terms of like what happens after the assault. So, you know, like memory um, impairment can sort of impact that differently in different people. And this can, yeah, like you sort of say continuum of consciousness, I'm hoping with this to sort of do a continuum of impairment. Um, so you, so I, I like the idea also of like a continuum of consciousness sort of marrying both of those because it's going to be a different experience for different people, you know, severity of, you know, alcohol use or drug use is going to affect different people differently. And um, you know, one drink for one person can affect them very differently than one drink for another person. And, mm, you know, yeah. but that doesn't mean, you know, that they should be any less, um, you know, believed or anything like that. You know, if they say that they were harmed, then we should just believe them. So, yeah, I definitely um, I definitely like the idea of sort of a continuum and and allowing for more nuance in these types of assaults, especially because they are so complex it is it is a complexity to add this sort of like impairment you know we start to talk about consciousness and cognitive processing and but also just like individual you know survivors and trauma you know it's just it's a lot so allowing for the nuance and complexity i think is okay to do and is what we should be doing and it's more reflective of what survivors say so in this you know in this article we talk about um moving towards a survivor informed approach to research that before we start <clears throat> creating these um, sort of arbitrary categories, um, and not that we shouldn't be trying to like categorize and do and do you know survey research or quantitative research with survivors, but getting their input beforehand, whether that's through qualitative work or even just like direct you know community-based research with survivors, getting more of their input on their experiences before we start just creating all these categories and making assumptions about people's experiences. Um, is going to serve our field better and also serve survivors better um, if we're more able to um, accurately describe their experiences. Yeah, I think I think that's really what we owe to them if we're going to be, you know, researching their experiences and you know, investigating that. I, I think I think it's really well put what you said that there's no one way of con- you know being affected by or being intoxicated by alcohol, and there's no one way of experiencing that impairment or intoxication and can have different effects on different people and you know it's so nuanced that we don't even know how it's it's not that every single person would be affected in the same way so yeah I think that's that's really valuable during you know in through this research you've also spoken to you know survivors and how they conceptualized their own experiences so how they spoke about their own experiences and what they made of them. So tell us about that. How did women describe their states of intoxication and, you know, the experience of being assaulted in general? So I wish we had like more than just sort of the qualitative things I already talked about. Again, this is what I hope to do in my, in my dissertation is ask more, ask survivors to describe in more detail about their experiences of impairment 
and intoxication and, um, you know, how that relates to, you know, what they were using at the time. Um, but also like the timeline. So we don't even really have like, um, you know, how long, you know, some people could be like drinking, you know, all day. Um, and actually one person, um, one person in the study did talk about that. They said that they had like 10 drinks over eight hours, but they said they didn't feel impaired Um, which that I thought was like, I mean, again, this is all like, you know, self-report data. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, limitations with that. But I thought that that was really interesting because I think if you, if someone just told, you know, somebody that or told like, like the police that if they were reporting, like, I'm sure that somebody would be like, well, you were definitely, you know, messed up. Um, but they said that they didn't feel impaired, but because we have these, um, these, uh, myths about like, you know, women drinking or, you know, survivors drinking, then, um, they probably would be dismissed. Um, and that's, um, important to, uh, push back against because again, like, you know, this person said that they didn't feel impaired at all. Um, even though like, if you were just hearing that, you might think that they were. Yeah, I, again, coming back to the same point that we were talking about just now, that people, you know, alcohol or substance uses different effects on different people, you know, depending on so many. I think there there are uh, biological reasons for that, you know, like there's so many different reasons for different tolerances or different, um, however it affects different people. So, you know, if someone doesn't feel impaired by that quantity i i feel like i don't think anyone else has the right to tell them that oh that doesn't make sense mm-hmm. because i mean it's really their own experience and mm-hmm. yeah i mean obviously there's there are health concerns and you know however you know recommended units units of alcohol and all of that but that's sort of my like um a little bit of my um like critique of like just just only clinical literature in this area so because there's like alcohol involved there's a lot of like clinic clinical researchers that do work in this area but it is very it's very um sort of pathologizing and and just very focused on like the clinical sort of route to research which i you know i don't do um which i i feel like if if this person this specific individual or really any of these um, any of our survivors were in a clinical study, this would be talked about very differently than how we talked mm-hmm. about it. Um, and this isn't to say that like clinical research isn't, um, isn't needed or isn't important, but, um, it's why we also need to consider what survivors are telling us. And we need to like, believe what they're telling us. Um, we're not here to like question what I'm not here to question what they say, <laughs> you know, it's not my job. Yeah. You know, we are, yeah. your research is focusing on how survivors talk about their own experiences or you know how survivors experience that situation and it's I think that's different than maybe looking at it looking at how alcohol is experienced you know objectively by human beings I don't even know how it's possible to measure that but yeah I absolutely agree that this is not a this is this is not a clinician approach so and and Mm -hmm. I think this also reminds me of the Chanel Miller case you know, I really remember the what she wrote post her assault, and you know the the really beautiful, poignant, you know, letter or the description she wrote, and how I feel like that was a really wonderful 
perspective or you know i think that was really valuable to understand how alcohol uh, and sexual assault victimization how that that can be experienced by survivors yeah and her her case um you know there was a like Brock Turner's like legal team had a had an alcohol researcher um like testify and say that people can consent while they're blacked out or something like ridiculous like that to try and say that like well you know she just doesn't remember consenting or whatever blah 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 which is just like ridiculous but and and again like yeah her case also like sort of is inspired me with uh my dissertation as well that like yes there are these like yes people are assaulted while under the while using alcohol or using drug like that i there is no like that is a fact when people say that they have been harmed we should believe them mm-hmm. that they have been harmed um but then also which is what i'm hoping to get at my dissertation by asking about survivors um either wanted or pleasurable sexual experiences that some of those might also involve substance use and people do also have sex while using substance you know like there, there's a lot of research in the in the sexual research um, realm that people, you know, people are like do drink and have sex or do use marijuana and have sex. So how how can we um, how can we reckon with the fact that like and this is sort of this is sort of um, true in Bianca Fileborn's her again, like I take a lot of inspiration from her book um, about unwanted sexual tension in bars and clubs mm-hmm. in Melbourne that something that is like unwanted to someone in one situation might not necessarily be unwanted to someone else in the same situation. And that's okay. We, so, again, like going back to my earlier point about like allowing for nuance and complexity, um, we sort of have to be able to deal with that, especially as researchers to be able to sort of combat these stereotypes and, but also to allow people the freedom to engage in, you know, in, experiences that they want to engage in. Um, so again, I'm hoping my dissertation will be able to do, um, but yeah, nuance and complexity is the, uh, is the main takeaway today for sure. Yeah. And related to that, I want to ask you, do you have any recommendations for how, you know, we can improve how we speak about sexual assault with the victim? So I was drinking, you know, both in terms of mm-hmm. research on it and, you know, more generally also, you know, in everyday conversations, how we can bring that nuance and complexity into mind. Yeah, so definitely um, for for research, and um, this is, again, sort of what I keep like talking about my dissertation, but this is sort of what I'll talk about in my dissertation, is that so much of the, I mean, first of all, so much of the research in this area is focused on college samples. So we need, we definitely need more research on um that's not specific to um, college student victims experiences. Not that that work isn't important, but we need to sort of broaden. We need to see how this works in the, in the greater community as well. Cause those are likely to look different than a college sample. Um, but also doing more work around the sort of structural conditions that allow for sexual violence with substance use to occur. Um, so like focusing on dismantling of stereotypes related to, you know, drinking and women and sexuality, like a lot of people assume that women who drink just want to have sex. And that's just that's just, a, you know, mm. that's not true. Um, and, and same goes for, you know, for men, too. But um, like sort of focusing on these more societal 
uh, narratives that have sort of shaped this experience rather than, well, we just need to get people to stop drinking and then sexual, sexual assault won't happen. Well, that's like not true. And also it's kind of a, like, just, it's, it's, it's a pipe. I mean, it's, you're not going to get people to like stop drinking everybody to stop drinking. Right. Like that's um, there's better uses of our time, I think in research to focus on these more societal and structural conditions that create this, again, the conditions that allow for this experience to be, to be normalized. Um, and uh, a researcher named Nicola Gavey kind of talks about that mm. in her, in her yeah. work in terms of like, just like individuals or um, like clinicians or, or advocates. Um, you know, I think just understanding that these experiences are not a monolithic, you know, they're not all the same. Um, and that's what, that's what, um, that's what this study showed and what I hope my dissertation will show that again, like, People are going to need, um, you know, individualized care and, you know, they might have experienced also like force as well as impairment or um, just because somebody doesn't remember um, what happened doesn't mean that they aren't traumatized and won't experience PTSD or or self-blame or some of these other things. And and also just being just including survivors more in the conversation about like what they need and what makes what their experiences are so that we can better tell their stories um because ultimately that's the that's the goal is to is to support survivors and to end you know gender-based violence so we want to include them in the process as much as possible yeah that's that's amazing advice and you know makes a lot of sense and something that we should all keep in mind but i think beyond what we spoke about you know in terms of your work i wanted to ask you know you're Mm -hmm. you're dealing with uh, some very difficult research topics in, in that, you know, you obviously deal with all of these societal opinions and, you know, rape myths and even, you know, how the self-blame that survivors, you know, go through and, you know, this can't be easy work. So I'm trying to understand mm-hmm. if doing this research is emotionally draining for you and how you balance your emotional well-being with your work. Yeah, and that's a really good question that I, I I think people in the academy should talk about more, um, or just anyone who works, you know, directly with like victims of trauma. But especially because you know I'm a survivor myself, so especially when I'm like reading about experiences that are very similar to my own, it definitely does get, um, you know, very personal um, when you start reading about people who have been through the same things as you and, um who have not, you know, who have not been supported the way that you think that they deserve. But I, uh, I definitely, I have a lot of very close colleagues who do um, work in this area. And so like leaning on them for support and talking through the fact that like a lot of the stuff that we read is like, is um, explicit and, um, and, and um, can be very difficult to read. So Definitely, definitely leaning on my colleagues and my advisor is also really great for that type of support. Um, but then also knowing when to, I think, take a break. Like, I, you know, if I don't need to read this today, it's, you know, it's fine if I, you know, wait like a couple days to get back to something that might be a little like intense. Or um, I think before we hopped on this, I was like talking about doing like yoga. Um, but yeah, just um, just knowing that like, you don't need to be, you know, doing this every hour of every day, like just take a, take a step back. Um, and that's okay. Yeah. That's, that's excellent advice. And 
I think I think that really focuses on bringing about more longevity to our work and you know making sure that we're able to do this work more um yeah more and like for for a longer time and you know contribute more to it as opposed to burning out really quickly yeah so i think final thing i want to ask you and this has been a really insightful conversation and it's been really wonderful to hear about all of your really meaningful work but what is one yes thank you <laughs> what is one practical thing that listeners can do tackle sexual violence on their own ends and you know not all of us are working directly with survivors or or mm-hmm. researching these issues but in our everyday lives what can all of us do um i think um you know even if we might not be working directly with survivors in the way that like the people that come on this podcast are pretty much everybody knows someone who has been impacted by and it might not be like rape but it could be sexual harassment you know some type of like sexualized harassment or gender-based violence or something. Um, so I think, you know, talking to the people that you care about, uh, um, about if they, you know, if they want to about their experiences and just believing people when they come forward, um, what, you know, in any capacity that is, um, it's, you know, it's not our job as like friends or to, to sort of like dissect and see if people say that they've been harmed then believe that they have been harmed and do what you can to support them. Um, cause it, they, you know, people deserve that. Um, so yeah, I think that, that that's it. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's really, I think that really is it, isn't it? Like that really is what we mm-hmm. should all be doing. Um, yeah. Amazing advice. Thank you so much for, that and you know just generally your work and coming to talk to us about this and explaining all of these concepts so wonderfully thank you so much Erin it was amazing yes thank you so much thank you so much for having me thank you